Pip is the package installer for Python. Often when you run pip, especially the first time in a new virtual environment, you will see something like, warning, you are using pip version 20.1.1 or whatever. However, version 20.2 is available. You should consider upgrading via the python-m pip install-upgrade pip command. And you should. No, really. Uh, go update pip now. I'll wait. Are you done? Great. Now get in the habit until October of replacing pip install with pip install dash dash use dash feature equals 2020 dash resolver. This flag is in the new 20.2 release and it's also in our show notes so you don't have to remember it. This new pip dependency resolver is the result of a lot of work. Five of the people involved with this work are joining the show today. Bernard Tires, Nicole Harris, Paul Moore, Pradyun Gedem, and Zuping Chung. Thank you all so much for joining the show. Of course, we talk about the dependency resolver, but we also talk about user experience research and testing, crafting good error messages, efforts to improve the test suite, testing PIP with PyTest, some of the difficulties with testing PIP, working on a team on a large project, and working with a large code base, and bringing new developers onto a large project. This episode of Test and Code is brought to you by PyCharm. Save time, use PyCharm. And by listeners like you who support the show through Patreon. Welcome to Test and Code, because software engineering should include more testing. So you all are part of the Python packaging, is that correct? We're part of a group who basically working on funded work to make some improvements to the packaging tools of Python, specifically PIP. So we're all involved in that project, which has been funded by Mozilla and the Chen Zuckerberg Foundation. Okay, that's pretty exciting. We've covered some of the goings-on on on, uh... Python bytes, but a lot of it is a a mystery. But I'm pretty excited about the uh, resolver changes and some of the, there's other third-party tools that have tried to solve this. So really, what is going on and what is the resolver changes? Right. Basically, within PIP, the old resolve, which has been around for many, many years now, has a number of problems. What it essentially does when you ask PIP to install a number of different packages, so A, B, and C, it goes at them one at a time. In effect, it says, okay, I'll do my best with A. Right, done that. Now let's see how I can get on with B. And it doesn't really go back over any decisions it's already made. So what that means is it's dependent on the order in which things happen. It can make mistakes because it gets into a a dead end where it can't get out. Most of the time it works, but there are a number of edge cases, if you like, where it just does things wrong. People have learned to live with it. People have worked around it, but the results are not always right and sometimes result in you installing something which just simply is broken, doesn't work. The new resolve is basically intended to fix all of that. We've picked up a a third-party library, ResolveLib, which was written to handle this type of resolution problem. And we're integrating it into PIP. And the idea is that what it will do is it will take everything that you've asked to install 
and work out a solution that satisfies all their requirements, all dependencies and so on. If it finds that it reaches a problem, it will backtrack and try something different. So the idea is that the resulting set of packages you install will be correct. It will satisfy all of the dependencies. And if PIP can't do that, it will tell you. So essentially, it's a huge bug fix. It's pretty cool because I don't really, as an end user, this seems like, why do we need this? But it's pretty clear when you think about, there's a lot of weird rules you can do. Like, for instance, let's say I've got a package that specifies specifically one version of one of the packages or one of the dependencies and then a range for others or something. Actually, I think a lot of packages probably specify either too little or too much, but never about the right amount. So if it comes up with an error message, like if it says, let's say uh, somebody wants a, a particular version of requests, but somebody else wants a range that doesn't include that version, like what do you do? Does the error message specifically say which package is specifying something you can't resolve? Yes. So that has been one of the things we've worked on is basically improving the error message when you have these conflicts and there is no actual solution to the problem that Pip's trying to solve, which is you have two incompatible sets and we're trying to find an intersection which has zero common things. We're actually talking about quite a few things here, the end user experience, but then this is very interesting that you are, as a team, not just talking about the implementation then and changing things, but like you said, it's a bug fix, but involving users in making sure the experience is helpful and it's not just rolled out to everybody without anybody seeing it. So the first question, what does it really mean for the end users? Is there more to that question other than uh, most things will be installed more correctly than they were before? No, that's basically it. In most cases, PIP will just perform better and not hit issues that it used to. The reason this is sort of a bigger project than it looks like as a small bug fix is Dependency resolution, the dependency resolver code, that is, in essence, the core of any package manager. So what we're, in some sense, is doing is changing the core of how PIP works and basically swapping a big chunk of legacy code out for something newer that works better, in one sense. And it's sort of a big chunk of work that results in a bug fix and then also some transitory effects on the state of the code base of PIP, which makes it easier to maintain and so on and so forth. So yeah, it's a bug fix, but it sort of has this huge set of implications on the user experience, on the maintainability of the code base, on the end behaviors, and so on. And will this change come in like one big version change, or is it going to come to end users in pieces? So it's going to be a soft rollout. The exact strategy is still under discussion, but it's not going to be one big release that breaks everyone, <laughs> <laughs> right? It's going to be, there is a beta phase. We have had some alpha testing done with some users already. There's going to be a beta phase for which the release happens this month in June Okay. when we're recording this. And then there'll be a beta phase. We'll have a feedback loop with users, Nicole, Bernard are going to do user testing during this time as well. And yeah, essentially, there's going to be a feedback loop. We have a few open issues, sort of, where we want user feedback on, hey, how do you use this feature? Because we need to know that to change behaviors here if we shouldn't and things like that. So yeah, there's a big feedback loop that we would like to set up and keep the infrastructure for that so that we can do that on an ongoing basis. Because one of the things we wanted to do as part of this project 
which is basically the first time anybody is getting paid to work on PIP. And sort of set up these infrastructure things, these communication channels with end users so that we can be less disruptive in our changes <laughs> and sort of have a nicer experience for both the maintainers and the end users around changes. Okay. Sorry, you had something to say? Yeah. So I want to just take a step back because some of the listeners might not be familiar with this project on the whole. So I guess we should just describe the project first to give some context to the discussion. So the project itself, it's roughly separated into three parts. They are all interconnected, but there are three main parts. One is the resolver work, and there is the test infrastructure work, and then there is the user experience work. So if you put this into the perspective of the user, there are three things we're going to do. So the first is we need to make PIP's test suite better so we can actually implement a thing that does not break everyone. So this is the test suite part. And this one is ongoing while we implement the resolver. We need to incrementally improve the test suite to cover everything we've added and we've swapped out. And then the second one is the resolver itself, which is mainly rolled out in the alpha part. And the functionality-wise is already kind of visible to the users right now, but behind the flag called unstable feature resolver. And then the third part is the user experience part, which is the part we actually try to present the result to the user and then based on what we get from the user and we can use our superpower from our user experience team to improve what we present to the user and how they see the resolver do and how they can fix things when the resolver tell them they're doing something wrong. So basically this is how the project is laid out. Well, that's cool. And there's also a tail end of the project in some senses where we basically have one person and the user experience team continue working on PIP in a limited capacity, but stay on till the end of the year. So that essentially guarantees that at least somebody is keeping the issue tracker running and just keeping the project sustainable. And as well as the user research team is going to keep conducting fundamental user research to inform changes in the future. Things like how do people use Python packaging tooling, what are user needs around documentation, and all of these sort of broader picture things would also sort of happen in essentially phase two, um, phase three, rather, of the project, which is going to start sometime in the next month or so. Okay, so all of this is, the entire thing is planned on getting wrapped up this year then? Yes, this is funded work, essentially, and that's all we have funding for. (laughs) Okay, cool. So within the next handful of months, things are going to get really good then. Quick, what's your favorite diff tool, Git client, database, front end, code profiler, code coverage visualization tool, editor, and debugger? For me, it's PyCharm for all of these. It's not just that PyCharm can do all of this. It's that I grab PyCharm for these tasks because it is the best for me that I have found. I'm serious. I also save time by using the same tool on tons of my workflow. And you can too. Use the link testandcode.com slash PyCharm and try it out yourself. Try a multi-change, multi-file commit with PyCharm and you'll never want to use anything else. Attach PyCharm to a remote or local database. Same effect. It's fast and intuitive. Makes working with databases fun again. Diff tool? Same. Twice last week, I used it to compare directory structures with subtle differences. 
test runner, same, best in class, and the list goes on. The link testingcode.com slash PyCharm lets you try out the full power of PyCharm Pro for four months. Save time, use PyCharm. That's testingcode.com slash PyCharm. So I'm interested in the testing. Can anybody talk about that? How do you test something like that? Hmm. Oh, there's so much here. <laughs> Paul, something? Do you want to start? With great difficulty. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head. It is a difficult problem. Traditionally, the way PIP's test suite has been set up, we've got fairly conventional PyTest-based test suite that has quite a bit of infrastructure grown over the years that runs, I think we've got a few thousand tests of various aspects, functionality, some unit tests, but an awful lot of it is functional level tests where the basic process is that we fire up a virtual environment, run an install by running a command line instance of pip and look at the output, look at the results and make sure it did what we expected. That is essentially the bulk of our testing and it has over the years grown to cover all the various different bits of functionality, usually as a result of we implement a feature, we add the test for it at the same time, the tests drive the development of the feature, etc. We have started in the past, I don't know, about 12 months or so, and we very much focused on as part of the, the testing work that was part of this project, building a more general infrastructure that lets us specify sets of conditions. We want three packages, all of which depend on each other like this and which hook together like that, where we can set up a test and then run that through PIP and confirm that the output is again as we want. Nearly all of the output will always be at the command line interface because PIP does not have an API exposed for external use in terms of we can run individual parts of PIP in isolation. We have some tests that do that, but quite frankly, one of the reasons we haven't got an API is because trying to do anything like that is hideous. So we're not hiding anything magic from anybody else. It's simply not a very good API. So <laughs> we're still basically doing a lot of testing via run PIP, look at the output. And it's just a lot of that sort of stuff. What we're trying to do with the newer tests is bring some broader structure to that. Um, we've got a number of tests, for instance, that are very specifically tied to things like the error message says X. Now, obviously, as we've got the user interface guys saying, that's a rubbish error message. It needs to explain what's going on better to the user. We're changing all that text for the user and all the tests are going, it's broken. It's not broken, but we have to fix the test. So we're trying to work out ways to make the test robust in the face of things like that happening while still testing the functionality. So it's a big issue, but it's we've made some inroads into improving it and hopefully that work will continue because we do rely very heavily on the test suite to say that when we release something, it works. And experience has shown that we have got problems in that area we need to do better, but it's something we are working on. So if I'm looking at on GitHub, github.com, pypa slash pip, is that where the all the tests actually, is that yep, where all yep. the code is? And Yep. Test yep, directory yep. in there. Okay. So somebody curious, they can just clone this and run the test themselves, right? Yes clear instructions in the documentation for how to do that, but running PyTest should in general work. There's a few quirks that Paul skipped though around sort of, <laughs> I mean, it's a very nice 
explanation of this, but it's in some ways extremely simplified because the run, pip, and see the output is actually where a huge chunk of the test suite's implementation complexity resides in that for running pip and seeing what effects it had, you need to be sort of modifying packages on, and it's installing packages somewhere, right? How do you see those behaviors? So what we actually do for each functional test in pip is basically create a virtual environment, run a subprocess of pip doing whatever within that environment, and then seeing effects on that environment. So there's essentially isolation per test in the test suite, and each call is a subprocess call. So there's a huge amount of overhead in every test of pip. So the test suite is slow because you're basically copying a file tree or doing a subprocess, a bunch of subprocess calls. This complexity, this overhead, also, in other than just making the test suite slow, also makes it robust in some ways. Because we know if a test of pip installing a wheel works, it will actually work in the real world. Because guess what? If someone's installing a package with pip, that's exactly what the test suite is doing. It is literally taking a package and installing it in a virtual environment. So there are those nice sort of overhead and therefore actually works things in pip's test suite that are sort of things we want to improve so that there's less overhead, but we still have the same amount of confidence in this. And just a whole bunch of sort of utilities around the infrastructure that Paul's talking about, which has grown organically and in some senses become extremely difficult to mangle into control <laughs> and sort of do stuff without confusing yourself. Oh, how do these two helpers differ? And things like that are sort of things we are hitting in the code base in some senses, in the tests, at least. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I'm glad you touched on it. The notion that if there was a really complete API, you could do almost all the testing from the API, but that doesn't guarantee that you're going to really fix everything for everybody because the end user experience is not from the API. So you need to have some tests from command line anyway, but having that be the main way to test, yeah, like you said, it's a you're very confident that it's going to work for people because that's what everybody's doing is the same thing. So that's interesting. The project itself is large. I mean, PIP is not a small code base. I mean, it doesn't look that small, at least. Is it overwhelming to jump into working on a project like this? Has anybody had any issues with, like when I jump into it or look at it, there's like 691 open issues 83 pull requests. So there's there's ongoing work going on, not just with Resolver. I assume that there's people trying to fix bugs and open source. There's still new people. Is there problems with workflow or is basically told to everybody else working on PIP to not work on it right now while this Resolver work is going on? No, we very much actively working on PIP in other areas at the same time. The code base itself, it's pretty daunting. I mean, I, I've been working on PIP for years now, so I look at it and go, I know where the horrible bits are. I'll keep away from them. I've got a bit of a feel for where not to go. I have no feel for how bad it would be for a newcomer. But we do, it is structured reasonably well in the sense that the individual pieces of functionality are independent. So for instance, ourselves working on the resolver, we're working in one very focused area of the code base and work that's going on, for instance, on the build system at the same time 
or some of the work that's going on on command line options, that's not impacting us. That's still going on. It's working very much the way it always had. We have a reasonably good workflow in that sense. I I don't know how I'd compare it to other projects. I don't work on any other projects of this size, but it seems to work fine for the way we go. The biggest problem we've actually had with this piece of work is unusually we have at least three full-time developers working on the resolver and it's not been the other work that's been getting in the ways it's been treading on each other's toes that's been the problems at times when we're sort of having to juggle whose pull request goes in next and does that one depend on that one and am i about to break everybody's commits and things like that one of the nice things about having funded work involving a team of us working very closely is that we actually have a means of keeping on top of that. We have regular meetings and we have chat systems that mean that giving somebody a shout and saying, do you want to go before me, is a workable solution where it simply isn't to the same extent in a a more normal open source, people working when they've got the time type of environment. So that's really, that is probably the biggest thing that the funded work has enabled is that very close working together and the, the collaboration between developers to actually make this happen at a speed which if we were doing this with volunteer resource the way the rest of PIP is handled, it would be years worth of work. It would be sufficiently large that, I mean, the fact that PIP needs a resolver has been a known issue for years and everybody's shied away from looking at it because it's just too big to even contemplate. So the funding has enabled us to actually get a handle on that piece of work in a way that we wouldn't have been able to otherwise. Because yes, there are collaboration issues, but they tend to be more around when we're working all on the same bit of the code base, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's similar to just, like you said, this is a paid project, so it's going to be similar issues as just like a normal paid internal project at a company or something, I imagine. Yeah, and sort of to connect the dot back to the original question of, is it daunting for newcomers? For me, the experience is pretty fresh, even though I've been working on for multiple years now. And yes, it is extremely daunting, partly because it's like a lot of code. So if this is, you're coming into a project that has so much code, there's inherent sort of, oh, wow, associate, oh God, I have to take on so much. And sort of that feeling towards it of there is so much here, as well as just complexity in the code base of like so many things are happening, right? Pips building packages, Pips downloading things from the package index, Pips figuring out which packages are compatible and doing dependency resolution and so on. So there's a whole bunch of things happening. One of the things I would like to point out is the clean separation that Paul is talking about has not been the case in Pips code base for a long time. That's actually been an effort done by the maintainers in the basically last two years to cleanly separate out these chunks so that we can work independently. Meaning stuff like the resolver stuff code is in a different place, actually physical different files. Is that what you mean? So the two teams aren't having to merge? Not just that. Okay. Not just that, but also like the code flow itself is inherently entangled, right? Because you're going to have to generate the metadata of a package to get to know its dependencies because setup.py exists. And essentially, both of those were inlined. So in some senses, separating that out into different files, yes, the refactoring things, as well as sort of 
conceptually separating them, not having them be the same object in memory that's being manipulated by both of these bits of code. Sort of just general refactoring and cleanups of cleanly modeling these separate tasks that are just coupled very strongly because of how the system has to work. Is that a reasonable phrasing of it? Uh, sounds interesting. One of the things I like about a package like this, and this is definitely not unique of a large open source project that's available for people to look at. One of the things I love now, I mean, this is a tangent really, is as my hiring manager hat sometimes, this is a new world, or at least it's not the same world that I came out of in like the 1990s coming out of college. If there were open source projects, I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to work on them. And so a lot of the projects I worked on in college were just smaller projects because they're they're just smaller for a class. The largest, of course, had an operating systems class where we had, like, it was a simulated operating system, but still, it was a lot of code and it was intentionally large. And I, it was a frustrating experience for me, but it's an important thing to have projects like this around so that people in college or just learning software can have the experience of working with a large set of code, even if they're not going to contribute back, just to play around with it, make some changes, try things out, and try to explore a large project. And even just even things like just navigating. One of the different things about a large project is just using all of your editor tools to navigate around and see, find out where things are. One of the things I want to get back to is the user experience research, because I think that's really important for this project. And it's really something I haven't heard about going on for an open source project before. So there is a lot of effort around the user experience for this. So can somebody tell me what that means and why it's important? Yeah, I can have a go at that. So I would challenge you on your assertion that it's not, you haven't seen that before because PyPI, the Python Package Index, is a project that I've previously been involved in uh, and we've funded UX work through that project before. So this is actually the second time that we've done UX funded work on packaging, Python packaging related projects. I think the main objective of the UX work is really to first and foremost understand the users of PIP and I think that will help us actually across all of Python packaging because it will allow everybody who is making our packaging tools to better understand the people who are using Python packaging tools. Basically to understand the user, understand what their current workflows are, understand what their pains are currently with PIP and then try to help the development team craft a user experience that is going to be helpful to the users when they're using the tool. So we've been doing a lot of work recently on, you mentioned it earlier, the error message for the resolver. So if the resolver can't actually resolve a dependency conflict, how do we present information in such a way that we can actually help people to navigate through that? And in order to do that effectively, we have to understand what knowledge our users have when they see an error message. And maybe Bernard, you might want to add to that because you've done a lot of work on the error messages. Sorry, the question was about doing user research in projects like this. So first of all, yeah, Nicole's comment about user experience work in open source projects. It is, it happens, it does happen a lot not as more than people think it does. Um, we're still in the minority in terms of contributions. In terms of the work on the error messages, that's been probably the most challenging thing because in order to write error messages, this is content design, writing words. In order to write those words, you need to know what's happened <laughs> to cause those words to display in a screen. 
so it's taken it's taken quite a um, quite a while to understand how big how complicated what pip is doing in dependency resolution and as paul mentioned earlier in terms of testing it's still unclear because of the wide variety of packages dependencies they have it's very difficult to know what has triggered that particular error or the specific details of what has triggered that error therefore it's very difficult to write words that will help the user so what we've tried to do is follow established best practices for usability so the usability of interactive systems and the main best practices that we've tried to follow First of all, is giving people visibility of the system status. What has the system done to get you to this situation? Trying to match the systems, sorry, the system and the real world. So the user thinks they've done X and the system has actually done Y. So if that's the case, then the system needs to explain that to the user. So what we've tried to do is essentially expose some of the system's internal operations in order for the user to say, okay, well, I wanted to do this and PIP has done that, so I understand what it's done. And then in order to give them a way of recovering or a way of moving on to solving the problem, that's quite complicated. There's a lot of possible solutions. So what we've tried to do is put together some documentation where the user can read through this documentation and say, okay, you know, were you trying to do this? No, okay, were you trying to do this? Yes, I was. Okay, in this case, this might help you. Because there's no sort of linear user journey in PIP, you don't start at the start and then work your way through. You know, there's a many different ways. It's quite complicated to and quite difficult to write very clear, very precise error messages that you might see in a, a graphical user interface application. And the way that we did the work was, well, first of all, we started with our initial iteration, our first version of it. We kicked it around the team, you know, figured out, okay, does this work? Does this work? And then we actually tested that with, I think it was about 15 users, where we simulated the user installing two packages, which then generated our error message. And what we were trying to understand was, okay, what information has the user got from this error message? What do they think has happened? What do they think they have to do next? And most importantly, in this case, did they see the link to, you know, here's possible solutions. And then the second part of that was actually testing the usability, the readability of that information that the user has in the documentation. So I hope that answered the question. That's actually fascinating. I love this idea. I think you explained it good enough to like make me understand that it's a it's a tough problem. So you've got a very complex system and something went wrong. You've got to teach in an error message teach the user a mental model that's simpler than the actual model in order for them to have a clue how things may have went wrong and how they could fix it. They don't need to know the entire model, but enough of it to try to fix it on their own or seek out somebody. Because in reality, it's probably not going to be the actual user that's going to need to fix it. They're going to have to, like on third-party projects, they're going to have to contact somebody and say, hey, I'm trying to use your package with this other package, and there's a conflict on one of the dependencies. Is that important? 
Can we fix that? And at the very least, even know which projects to contact. That's a, especially in Python, we've got packages that are, it needs to be resolved fast in commercial projects. And then in open source projects, it's a similar sort of problem that you guys have, or that a lot of open source projects have is the person I reach out to might not have time to fix it today. It might be a few weeks or they might even be paying attention to their email right now. So interesting. Yeah, and to touch on what you've just said, Brian, we actually do in the documentation recommend that's one of the possible solutions is if you've got dependency conflicts in libraries that you're consuming, go and talk to the maintainers. So that is actually one of the possible kind of recommendations we are saying to users, amongst others. Okay, so one of the original tests had like 15 people. So is that something that you guys are ongoing thing is to, to test with users again for absolutely okay absolutely so we'll be running some more user tests when we come up with the beta and then as Prajan mentioned earlier we have funding through to the end of the year so there will be more user testing that we'll be conducting in the coming months or maybe we can actually share with you the link to publish for the sign-up form for participating in the user testing. I think it's also important to mention that it's not just going to be sort of doing usability testing. So this is essentially usability test. You've got a scenario that you're asking the user to work their way through, and at the end of it, you have your results. We're also very, very interested in doing sort of in, in our language, user research. So general fundamental user research where you're, it might be, well, in the old days when we were able to be physically <laughs> closer to each other, it might be visiting people's offices or visiting them at home or understanding how they do their work. So how they use PIP. It might be just sitting down with somebody as they're writing code, as they're doing their DevOps, web ops, you know, sysadmin work and actually watching how they're using PIP and asking questions are focused on some research objectives that we have. In the age of COVID-19, this will probably be more remote. So as we're doing today, it might be an interview, a 20, 30 minute interview over a Skype call focused on areas that we're interested in understanding so that we can then take that information and feed it into Paul and Pradian and Su Ping about how to how to use that in the development. I was just about to say one thing maybe to emphasize about the user research is I wouldn't want your users to think, well, I'm not very experienced using PIP. I don't know anything about PIP, so I wouldn't sign up to do that user research. What we're looking for is to speak to people who have a broad range of experience and who are using Python in different ways. So you might be completely new to the Python ecosystem. Actually, we'd love to speak to you because we have access to quite a lot of experienced developers we have it sometimes it's harder to find less experienced pip users so i would encourage any of your users who are listening to sign up for those user studies that was something i was going to say as well as a maintainer of pip the thing i'm most excited about with this research is it gives us access to the if you like the silent majority of pip users most of the time what we see is things like tickets coming in issues on the tracker and they're typically from people who are in some sense experts are doing clever things with pip they're doing complicated workflows 
So we have quite a biased view of what PIP's user base looks like, and it's really difficult to get a good sense of how the average PIP user will respond. You know, something like the resolver changes, for instance. I don't genuinely have a good feel for how many people actually use PIP to install more than one package at once. You know, if everybody's just going PIP install requests, then a lot of the complexity that we're agonizing over isn't the right place to spend our time. We should be looking at that guy who needs us to make his simple problem work right and not spend all of our time on some one massively complex infrastructure project that's got unique issues. So this research is immensely... Well, that wouldn't be fun, though. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Helping ordinary people is always fun, Brian. (laughs) One other thing as well, Brian, just going further with We're also interested in speaking with people who have various different, again, in our language, access needs. So that's disabilities, people who have visual impairments, hearing impairments, motor skill impairments, because, again, it's very often in software development that we're designing for sort of the non-existent able-bodied person. But everybody has a disability, either temporary or permanent As an example, I read a fascinating essay written by a blind developer who explained how he writes his code. And the first most amazing thing was he said, well, I don't have a screen because I don't need it. So that person was relying on keyboard shortcuts, on keyboards, on... So again, like Nicole said, we're interested in speaking with everybody and we really do mean everybody, every shape and size of human being. No, okay, so I really would like to get a whole bunch of people signed up for the user studies as well. I think that'd be the more input, the better to some extent. But what if I'm not part of that, but I'm like checking out the betas when they come out and stuff like that, and I have some feedback? Like, I assume if there's an error in like a complete error or something wrong, I could file a ticket. But if it's just something's a little confusing or I don't quite get how things are different, is there a feedback? channel for that sort of information? I would suggest that those issues could still be raised in the PIPs issue tracker and we would then tag that with UX and that would be something that the UX team would then investigate. So if there's confusion over the documentation, over the error message, something's not clear, we do want to hear about that. I think when people think about issue trackers, they often obviously think about bugs and about code, but we're thinking about user experience and there's no reason that we shouldn't be tracking those issues equally. Yeah. I guess I just, as a developer, I'm usually thinking about the... Yeah, the the, the code, right? The code part. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we're using the GitHub issue tracker to track those problems too. I think that's a great idea. And, and obviously there are some issues that are already open where there's already discussion ongoing that people can jump in on and share their experience as well. And you'll find those on the issue tracker tagged under UX. It's just another type of contribution. No, I think, and it's awesome. Is there... Has there been any other surprising uh, findings from talking with users? Well, (laughs) so anything involving humans (laughs) always has bizarre and interesting factoids. I think, let me see, so far the most interesting thing has been literally the wide diversity of both the kinds of people that are using Python and PIP, sort of their backgrounds, and what they're using it for. If something can run computer code, people seem to be doing using Python for it. Yeah, that's probably the, the, which probably isn't very interesting or unexpected to the devs and other people. But for me, it was like, literally, somebody described it as, you know, it is the glue. I use it as glue. If you need glue, I use Python. 
and I can make it work, which for me was a really great way of describing it. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, when I started my career, that was Bash. And now it's more Python to do that sort of thing. And then some people don't even, even that use Bash every day, don't realize it's a full programming language. I want to be respectful of everybody's time because we're coming up on the end of the hour. What should people expect to happen next with this project as an outside observer? What should we see next? I guess the next big thing is going to come along will be the beta release of the new resolver. PIP releases quarterly in any case. So we've had two releases so far this year in January and in late April, I think it might have been early May. The next scheduled release is around now at the end of June, and that release will include the beta version of the new resolver. It will be opt-in at that time, so nothing will change in terms of the resolver for end users who don't want to opt into the new resolver. There will be communications. We're in the process of developing communications that cover what will be changed, how people can get involved, what they can expect to see. That should be coming over as part coming out as part of the the release process as it goes ahead. Once the release is out, people will be able to use the new resolver just by specifying a flag on the command line. Hopefully, people will try it out either to make sure it does the same as the old one or to help them solve problems that the old one's given them difficulties with. And moving on from there, over the rest of the year, as PIP releases come out, we will see As Pradian said earlier, we haven't decided on the precise details of the rollout yet, but it will be a phased approach where the new resolver will move from being opt-in to being opt-out, so on by default, but if you still need the old resolver because you've got a specific circumstance that hasn't been addressed, then you'll have a way of returning to the old resolver, and finally it will become the default and only resolver available. So in terms of the resolver rollout, that will be happening over the next few months with the beta coming very soon now. The UX work and the improvements that we're hoping to see in terms of the general user experience, that will be feeding into ongoing PIP development. So there'll be some of that that will be happening as we develop improved documentation that will just appear on the site in the PIP documentation, etc. Error messages will be improved as part of development work which will come into the releases as they come out so there'll be a lot of gradual changes coming in with the resolver being the sort of the thread that maybe pulls them together and that should be over as I say maybe the next two or three pip releases through to the end of the year wonderful i'm excited to try the new stuff out well i want to thank everybody for their time both on this episode of the podcast so thank you for showing up and also for your work on PIP. It's a, something I use every day and I try not to think about it too much. So having it something that just works better is awesome. Not many of my tools are being improved as I speak. So that's really neat. So thank you everybody for coming on. Thanks for the time to talk yeah. to everybody. Thank you, Thanks, Brian. Brian. Thanks, Brian. Thank you, Bernard, Nicole, Paul, Prajun, and Suping. I know it wasn't easy to get six people from almost as many time zones on one call, but I really enjoyed the discussion. The flag to try the new resolver again in pip 20.2 is dash dash use dash features. Wait, I got that wrong. Dash dash use dash feature equals 2020 dash resolver. I'll just go look it up in the show notes. It'll be in the show notes at testingcode.com slash 124. 
Thank you, PyCharm, for being a longtime supporter of Test and Code and for continuing to improve an already amazing editor. Try it yourself at testandcode.com slash PyCharm. Save time, use PyCharm. And of course, that link, as well as the links message in the sh- mentioned in the show, and the flag, of course, is included in our show notes at testandcode.com slash 124. Thank you, Patreon supporters, for continuing to fund the show. Join them by going to testandcode.com slash support. Thank you to the incredible people helping each other and with testing questions every day on our Slack channel. Get help or help others at testandcode.com slash Slack. Reach out to me if you'd like to be on the show or have a topic we should cover or a person we should interview. You can reach me at testandcode.com slash contact or on Twitter at Brian Aachen or at testandcode. That's all for now. Now go out and test something. But before you do, upgrade PIP and try the new Resolver. <laughs>